This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Welcome to Jikoji Sunday program. Um, I'd like to welcome David Shapiro to uh, visit us remotely. And here's the bio that we've got. David Shapiro became a student of Chungpung uh, Trungpa Rinpoche in 1973 and studied with him until his death in 1987. David was a founding director of the Milwaukee Dharma Study Group, now the Shambhala Center, and was a practicing internist for over three decades. He's currently involved with the Light of Verotsana Translation Group and continues to practice with the context of Tibetan Buddhism. For the last few years, he's been involved in the translation and publication of a number of works involving many stories of Jishyar Huling, the National Epic of Tibet. David's talk is right now. Welcome, David. Great. Well, thank you very much. I'm thrilled to not be here. Uh, like many of you, uh, I think we're all uh, looking forward to, to uh, being back in uh, at Tokoji or our various uh, practice centers. Um, and on the other hand, I'm still thrilled to be uh, uh, allowed and uh, being honored by uh, giving this particular talk uh, through the new methodology of online teaching known as Zoom, or perhaps there's a new religion called Zoomism. But anyway, uh, there are reasons uh, that there are monasteries and temples as well as schools and hospitals and other uh, organizations. And I think that for the most part, at least as it, as it pertains to monastic and temples and shrines and altars and that sort of thing, uh, for thousands of years, perhaps tens of thousands of years, people have realized uh, that it's helpful to, to be uh, removed at times from, from all the distractions. Uh, my wife and I uh, have a very nice sort of shrine area, but it's, it's within our bedroom where there are other distractions. There's uh, bugs in the window. We have a printer that has a mind of its own that sort of goes on randomly, usually during sitting practice, sometimes when we're trying to go to sleep. Um, and there's various different things. So, so to be able to be in a place where uh, the, the whole vibe, the whole uh, aim of it is uh, concentrated meditation practice is a wonderful thing. And I'm sure we're all looking forward to being back with you and Jokoji or uh, various different places where we might practice. In, in terms of distractions, I uh, was thinking about that in terms of this talk uh, because distractions come up a lot. Uh, they are uh, what uh, becomes our mind stream and our mind stream has uh, different uh, mental events that, that, that pile up on one on another and uh, they become mind streams and then um, they go into a creek and then we get to this mind creek which is sort of something we're quite familiar with because we've we've been there before and then that creek goes to becoming a, a gushing river and the river of course empties out into the great ocean and we ride upon the waves of the ocean and we're sort of carried by this all the time and in, in meditation practice we try to sort of slow that process down and come back to see what, what underlies that practice. And uh, so I'm gonna to try to, to keep this talk orderly. 
Although when I was thinking about that, I was thinking, well, maybe there's a whole nother talk because maybe the mind can't really be orderly. Many of us probably who are listening to this have been doing this sort of practice for decades, many decades possibly. And uh, we still may notice that our minds are mostly not very orderly, which begs the question of whether or not they're ever gonna get orderly or perhaps the fact that they're not orderly now or, or maybe they occasionally they appear to be orderly, but they're not really orderly because we know if we sort of scratch the orderliness, we know the orderliness is something that we've laid on, sort of on top of our mental events. And so, so maybe there's a whole nother talk about uh, whether, whether minds can become orderly or whether there's something, something behind or beyond mind that, that belies a, a greater uh, reality. Uh, that has actually uh, manifests itself by the fact that despite our, our, our best and hardest and, and, and most sought after efforts, our minds, in fact, really, they're, they're not all that orderly. And the proof of that is, is that all that was kind of a digression from, from the talk or a lack of orderliness. So as, as uh, in the introduction, I have been involved in some uh, translation work of uh, the great Tibetan epic um, and that was mentioned and um, not going to talk about that uh, this time. Uh, though I will say that we have uh, another episode of that epic coming out in August, uh, which will be uh, published as uh, Taming of the Demons. But in any case, uh, I am going to talk about a different uh, translator who some of you may uh, know, and, and his name is uh, Tubton Jinpa, who's an interesting fellow. For, for the last three and a half or four decades, he's been the main translator for the, the Dalai Lama. And uh, he, he grew up and, uh, and was a monk early on, came back to the monastic thing. And um, one, one day the Dalai Lama was giving a talk in Dharamasala, which is where the, uh, the uh, Tibetan uh, government in exile uh, is. And his, his translator uh, couldn't make it or was, there was a plane delay. And he, that is, um, Tubton Jinpa got asked, and he was only like 20 or 24, um, to translate this one talk. And um, Dalai Lama liked the way he translated as did uh, many of the Americans there. Uh, so it was at a conference. And uh, so ever since then, he has been a Dalai Lama is really his main translator. And um, though he, he did leave uh, his robes behind and uh, married and has two daughters and lives in Montreal and uh, still actively translates and writes a number of books. And, um, and actually after I had sort of decided what I was gonna talk about, I ran into a book that he recently had published, uh, which is called The Fearless Heart. Here I have a picture of it now. It's a, this is a, you, know, you can see that, Fearless Heart. And uh, it's, it's about compassion, which is actually the title of today's talk. It's about compassion and emptiness and Buddha nature. And I'm gonna to refer to that just a little bit uh, more. Anyway, he lives in uh, Montreal. He had, uh, after he left uh, his monastery, he, he went to Cambridge, got a PhD in, uh, in Buddhist studies, not surprisingly, and um, has, uh, is now a professor in uh, Montreal at McGill, um, but still travels quite a bit and uh, translates and, um, 
he actually came to our neck of the woods, our neck, of course, you don't know where my neck of the woods is, but it's not that far from Tokoji. Uh, we're here in Belmont. Uh, but he did some work at Stanford uh, in 2007 uh, with uh, uh, an organization that he helped found called the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research. And it's possible all of you know all of this, in which case I apologize. And uh, they put together uh, with his help a um, compassion cultivation training. And it was, it was begun actually by a neurosurgeon at Stanford who had done uh, some research himself uh, along with Richard Davison from Madison uh, about compassion training, gratitude training, and it's sort of become a thing and had been a thing. And so they put together this program primarily at first uh, geared uh, towards healthcare workers. And, uh, and so that's an ongoing thing. And then from that, um, I guess almost 10, 15 years later, he decided to put uh, a book together about uh, that program uh, and his involvement uh, in it. And it's an easy read and it has a number of exercises. And uh, towards the end of the talk, we're gonna actually do uh, one of those exercises. Um, as, as a further digression, this might be the last digression, um, I was at a translator's conference in Boulder three or four years ago, and, and he happened to be there. And uh, at that time, there was a discussion sort of underlying one of the themes was, uh, and that was about Tibetan Buddhism, was a Tibetan translator's conference. And uh, there was an underlying theme about mindfulness. And there was something in the air that that the popularity of, of mindfulness somehow uh, denigrated the notion of Buddhist meditation practice. And uh, it came up a couple of times uh, during, during that conference, but that always kind of seemed slightly peculiar to me. And uh, in the same way, I think uh, a person could sort of feel that uh, the secular teaching of compassion as um, put together by an eminent Buddhist scholar um, might, might be somehow um, tinted or slightly peculiar as well. And that doesn't make any sense to me either because the, um, the motivation, which is really what compassion is about, the motivation to do uh, helpful things for other people um, and to spread a sense of uh, peace and joy and uh, equanimity towards others is really uh, at the very core of compassion and at the core of, of Buddhist studies. So that, that marks the end of the second and I think last digression. So today's talk is about emptiness, compassion and Buddha nature and how Buddha nature if you will, forms the foundation from which uh, we can uh, understand, um, come to try to understand notions of compassion and emptiness, uh, particularly from the, the Mahayana perspective. And in order to give this um, some legs, if you will, I was just going to sort of very briefly uh, go through the historical development of uh, of all of Buddhism. 
in the next few minutes and uh, then uh, discuss Buddha nature a bit and then uh, get back to a little bit of uh, simple exercise in, uh, in compassion training. So that's where we are. And so that's where we're headed. So Buddhism began a long time ago, as you know, 600 and something BCE. And uh, the first turning, the first schools of Buddhism, the first teachings of the Buddha, of course, were the four noble truths, truth of suffering, truth of the origin of suffering, the truth of the cessation of suffering, and the truth of the path. And these four noble truths continue to uh, be the foundation of Theravadan, or what we might uh, call Hinayana Buddhism. And, and from those four truths, the uh, four great feelings, if you will, or the four Brahma-viharas uh, arose as, as a teaching, actually, and as a practice. And uh, they bridge somewhat, I think, the Theravadan and the Mahayana schools. And the four Brahma-viharas, of course, are loving kindness, the development of loving kindness, which leads to uh, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. The four Brahma-viharas are kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And they have a number of uh, slokas or chants uh, to um, root themselves in the development of the four Brahma-viharas, which, uh, which are uh, very similar to practices uh, that we have in the Mahayana and uh, Vajrayana. And so sometimes I like to think that uh, for all the sectarian differences, uh, there's a new way or another way of, of looking at Buddhism, which is the sectarian similarities and how uh, fundamental uh, truths are, are, are voiced from the very uh, first moments of the Buddha's teachings of uh, truth of suffering to the highest teachings of uh, Mahayana, Vajrayana, and uh, Zogchen. And so, and so that's sort of the general uh, gist of, of the Theravadan uh, Hinayana schools. And they have famous slokas, which, which uh, Thubten Jinpa uh, places in here about five times in his book, and which you may well be familiar with since you chanted them just a moment ago. Uh, and he has some slightly different translation, which is, may all beings attain happiness and its causes. May all beings be free from suffering and its causes. May all beings never be separated from the joy that is free of misery. May all beings abide in equanimity, free from bias of attachment and aversion. There's a number of different translations of that, but the, the basic gist of it is that uh, through compassion, through training and through caring uh, for others, uh, we fulfill our responsibilities as uh, good uh, human beings, as Buddhist uh, practitioners. In, in terms of the uh, Mahayana, uh, we have uh, paramita practices of generosity, virtue, patience, exertion, which are the uh, form paramitas, and then the meditation paramitas of uh, meditation and insight, or sometimes we translate as, that as prajna. 
and these are called transcendent actions, as, as you all know, uh, because there are actions that can be done free from ego. And so we have uh, ego-centric ways of, uh, of all of those things, whether it's generosity or patience uh, or exertion. And then we have a way of performing those actions that are free from ego, which are known as the transcendent actions or the, the paramita practices. And this forms the uh, core of, uh, of Mahayana practice. In terms of Vajrayana, is just a further slight extension of that where all of those things are incorporated. And there's also a sense of um, working with the energy of uh, emotions, either positive or negative emotions. Within Vajrayana practice, there's lots of practices. Many of them have to do with what we call a generation and completion stage. Uh, generation stage has to do with generating not surprisingly, some form of a deity or a figure um, and identifying it in, in front or behind or self-identifying uh, with, with that uh, deity and actualizing some of the characteristics and the energy of, of that particular visualization and working uh, with that. That's called generation stage. And then the completion stage, completion is just a fancy word for uh, formless, uh, which is that uh, in all generation practices, they all end and actually all begin with a formless practice, either just sitting or sitting and watching the breath or simply being aware. Uh, but some practice that has to do uh, with uh, moving beyond uh, mental events and conceptualizations. And then uh, lastly, I guess, or in some schemas, lastly, uh, Zogchen uh, instructions and practices really have to do uh, with a um, duality between mental events and awareness uh, known in Zogchen as Rigpa which is also translated sometimes as insight. Um, and, and there the notion is that uh, mental conceptions and mental events uh, are never completely free of our own uh, conceptual mind. Is that uh, regardless of how subtle and, uh, and how wondrous they may be, uh, they're still uh, tinged by, by the process of thoughts themselves. And so that the focus, uh, I guess, uh, there is uh, to go um, beyond or through or inside or however direction appeals to you into a, a, a understanding or a state of a simple uh, awareness, just simple naked pristine awareness. So how it's usually referred to. And that's contrasted uh, with, with practices that have to do with uh, form um, or, or, or contemplation. And so, so that's going from the uh, Theravadan uh, uh, on up or through or out. And uh, so the question then uh, for today's talk is really, well, where, what does that have to do with uh, compassion? Uh, emptiness and Buddha nature. 
And the idea, I guess, is that that pristine awareness is another, is another way of talking about Buddha nature itself, that uh, beyond thought, uh, all beings are uh, imbued with Buddha nature. Famously, the Zen people talk about those dogs with the Buddha nature. Um, but all, all sentient beings but, uh, uh, are, have, have Buddha nature and that enlightenment isn't something that is conferred from above or below or, or, or anything but within. And that uh, there's a funny saying in Tibetan Buddhism that uh, my wife and I are always joking about, which is that it, it goes something like, a wise man knows when there's clouds that the sun is still behind the clouds, the sun being the metaphor for Tathagata Garbha or for Buddha nature. But it always sort of struck us that you didn't have to be that wise really to know that the sun was behind the clouds. Everybody knows the sun is behind the clouds. Clouds are the thing between you and the sun. And uh, in the same way, the idea is that liberation has to do with clearing the clouds away because of uh, the liberated state uh, resides within all of us and is known uh, in, in lots of different ways, but primarily it's known as Buddha nature or Tathagata Garbha, which is the essence. Garbha is the word for essence, of course. Tathagata is the one who's gone beyond. And then uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, who was my teacher, used to also use, like to use the term Sugata Garbha. Sugata uh, actually goes back to the Brahma Viharas and is the notion of joy. And so Sugatagarbha is the notion of the essence of those who joyously went beyond. And uh, he liked that because it sort of, I think it promotes a little bit of cheer. And it also uh, connotes the idea that um, in, in Buddhist philosophy, there's two ways of talking about Buddha nature. There's what's known as the negative way, which is that Buddha nature is free from all possible, not just free of all stain, uh, but free of all con possible conditioning. And there's not, and not only is it free of it, but there's, there's nothing that you can say about it. And as soon as you've said something about it, you've said, just wait damn too much. And, and so that's, that's sort of the negative way of talking about uh, Tathagata Garbha, which is it's, it's unborn, unconditioned, and you can't say anything about it, so shut up. And then there's another way of talking about Tathagata Garbha, which is that it's unborn, unconditioned, and luminous. And the luminous quality of Tathagata Garbha gets at, I think, what he was pointing at uh, when he uh, used the term uh, Sugata Garbha. Anyway, the notion is that uh, within all of us exists Buddha nature. And uh, doesn't matter particularly what we call it and doesn't matter whether we're good people or bad people or Buddhists or non-Buddhists this essence of enlightenment, essence of those who have gone beyond or joyously gone beyond exists within all sentient beings. And our practice is about um, recognizing that. And so all the things we do, whether it's reciting the slokas of the Brahma Viharas or 
uh, practicing uh, paramita practice or generational completion stage or attempting to rest in pristine awareness. All of those are about uh, awakening and recognizing uh, Buddha nature. And, and the importance of that, or the reason that we do that, um, is that then we can uh, fully uh, cognate compassion and emptiness. And emptiness here is um, um, simply that all things are empty of their own conditioning. That is that all things only exist in relation to others. So the, the emptiness is really a way of, of describing the web of connectedness that all things have. But we use the term emptiness to say that there is nothing, you know, whether it's the chair or the vase or the person or the country or the mountain or the volcano or your favorite pet, there, there you have a, a existence that condi is conditioned upon all other things uh, in, in, in the universe. And they have no, no existence that's freestanding. And, and, and it's through recognizing our connection with Buddha nature and our shared Buddha nature that uh, we recognize the, the subtlety and the depth of that interconnection that we have uh, with all people and all things, frankly. And um, compassion is an interesting one. That's the other thing that we feel that uh, comes from recognizing our own Buddha nature. Um, We talked, uh, my wife and I talked about the, the word compassion is the word that everybody has agreed to is the translation of, of, of Buddhist or Sanskrit or Tibetan terms that are kind of like compassion. But it's, it's sort of the, the translator's dilemma when uh, as is almost always the case, one word doesn't simply go from one language to another. So we would say, for instance, that sometimes in some people's mind, compassion has baggage that comes with it, that uh, it doesn't have, I don't know anything about Japanese, but it, it's baggage that it, it may not have in Tibetan or may not have in, in Sanskrit. Um, but what we have, a f it, it's not unusual in the West that, um, the, in our minds from, from earliest training, we have uh, developed a notion that, that those people for whom we should feel compassion aren't, um, aren't doing quite as well as we are. That uh, compassion comes from a place that's um, slightly elevated. And, and and that's kind of, that to me, that's kind of problematic. And, um, and so that compassion, it, it, and, and certainly there are, I'm sure for all of us, you know, most people are not doing as well as we are. And uh, we all know lots of people who aren't doing as well as us, but the, the notion there is that it's, it's a little bit of the translator's dilemma that, uh, that sometimes requires an unpacking of a word uh, such as compassion. 
or even loving kindness. Uh, because there's, there's, I think in, in the original, it's, it's, I think a little more kind of even um, and doesn't necessarily go up or down so that you could, you could have loving kindness towards your teacher or compassion towards your teacher or somebody who you thought of as highly elevated above you as well as um, homeless people. Uh, but, but your compassion to the homeless people, if you will, wouldn't in somehow, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't elevate you above them. And the reason that it doesn't is that you both, of course, have Buddha nature. And so it's Buddha nature that is the, uh, the focus and the thing that, that causes uh, equanimity or equalness to, uh, to make some kind of sense between sentient beings. And um, so actually I thought this was gonna be a really short talk, but it wasn't. And uh, I, I did though uh, want to end with this, um, with this little practice that we're all gonna do to, together. It's only gonna take um, three minutes and then there should be um, I think some time for, for questions. Um, and this is adapted uh, from, from this book, which I'm not selling. Next time I come to talk, I'll sell a book. <laughs> um, and um, so this is what you do. Basically, um, if you want, you can stretch for a minute, but you don't have to. If you're all stretched out. And then uh, you just sit in your usual comfortable uh, posture in a chair or cross-legged. And this can be done either with the eyes open or the eyes closed. Um, interestingly, uh, Tubden Jinpa uh, talks a lot about doing this and other practices with the eyes closed. Though most of the Tibetans that I practice with tend to want to keep their eyes open. But either way, um, so uh, the first thing is uh, you, you have the posture and you check your posture and your vertebrae sort of line up and your head is pointed towards the sky and your butt is on the ground or the earth. And just take a moment. And then uh, this practice involves uh, bringing to mind a person. And, and this person in particular um, can be a relative, a parent or child, uh, somebody you work with, somebody uh, you saw in the street, homeless person, person you know to be sick, person even that you know uh, to be dying or even uh, dead. Um, but this, uh, your relationship to this person is that this is a person that you just want something good for. So if you're a parental unit, a child usually works pretty well. If you're a child, a parent might work, but might not work so well. But it should be somebody uh, for whom you have no, all, all you really want is for them to, to be happy. Just kind of generally happy. And so try to come up with somebody. 
And so now you shift your focus towards the area of your heart. And from that, you just feel uh, something towards that person. You feel, you feel them just sort of uh, basking in the idea that you would like them to be happy. It's not that they appreciate what you're doing for them. It's just they're there in front of you or in your mind in front of you. And the only thing you're doing at all is wanting them to be happy. Just try to sit with that for a bit. You're not planning how they will become happy. You're not sending them money or ideas or plans. You're simply wanting them to be happy. Feel your chest and your heart opening up as you're simply wanting them to be happy. Try to focus on your wantingness. And after doing that, try to extend your wanting them to be happy to, let's say, some people around them. Maybe the block that they live on or other members of your family. Continue to extend out, you're wanting them to be happy. And now extend it further, as much as you can, to the city, to the state, to the country, to the world. Now this last part is optional. Again, from your heart or from your heart center, just feel light streaming out to all the people you would like to have experience happiness. So that, that's, a, that's a quick one. And um, there's a number of things in the book that are, that are like that. And uh, so I, um, today uh, in uh, summary, we uh, talked about uh, Buddha nature and uh, its relationship to uh, emptiness, compassion and, uh, and the Buddhist path. So if, uh, if there are any questions uh, or comments or suggestions uh, that would be helpful. I hate to keep mentioning my wife, but but we just finished a series for the American College of Physicians, which is an internal medicine group. And every uh, year they have a big meeting and usually thousands of people go. 
And while we were practicing for 35 or so years, every year we would say, well, next year we'll go. And they would move from one place to another, from Philadelphia to New Orleans, to San Diego, to Denver, Minneapolis. I don't think they ever had one in Milwaukee, which is where we were living. But anyway, so this, this year they're doing it online like everything else. And, um, and at the end of each talk that you listen to, you have to sort of, uh, you have to evaluate the talk. See? And, and there's four questions in the talk, right? Four questions, five questions, maybe five questions. And the, the first question is, is this was the subject good and it's you can rank it from one to five like every Likert scale and the second one is was the speaker good and that gets ranked and then the third one was was it free from uh, uh, commercial bias and the fourth was was it sort of was the subject matter so was it too specialized, uh, just right, or too basic. And then the fifth one, which is a fill in the blank, was what, uh, what are you gonna do different now that you've heard this talk? <laughs> anyway, when I was thinking about the talk, I kept, it was, we kept, we just sort of finished this up. We've been listening to these talks for a couple of weeks now. And um, so I hope, that this was good and, and um, just be thankful you don't have to grade it. Anyway, any, any questions or comments? That'd be great. I, I got a question here at Chikoji. This is Doug. Uh, thank you, David, for your talk and uh, uh, bringing up uh, that there are multiple ways of, I, I guess, translating compassion. And I, what are some other words that you use? Mm -hmm. You know, kindness, helpfulness, compassion. Um, it's, is it a relational word? Is it a yeah. action word? That's a great question. Uh, the usual Tibetan is, is Tukje, uh, uh, and uh, Ning, which is heart. So it has something to do with the heart and something to do with uh, an ability, uh, a, a, a quality that you actually do are doing something, that you have the ability to do something from the heart maybe. Um, and um, so concern, I think is a good one. There was, uh, we toyed for a while with simply the word remembrance. The idea that uh, in, in your day-to-day -day activity, you're remembering sort of how other people are. Um, and, and, and to me, remembrance or holding people in your heart um, has that more of that sort of evenness to, equal evenness to it. But we haven't found any better word. And, far better translators than either of us continue to use the word compassion. So there's not, there's gonna be an anti-compassion movement against the word, but I think it's, it's okay to sort of think about 
what what it is when you when you do translate something that that sometimes the word the 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 source language has 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 a different take on it than the language you're translating into and um and that's true for for lots of things and i'm sure that people who translate uh, zen texts from the chinese or japanese have struggled with the same sorts of things that uh, uh, ideas of enlightenment or Kensho or uh, progress on the path or, or even translations of simple stories um, may, um, as the movie pointed out, it may be somewhat lost in translation. And uh, so that's, that's something I think always uh, worth considering, but I think the, the heart notion of compassion is, is, is having concern for others and feeling, that's why I think the emptiness thing is so important is to, to feel that you're uh, in the web with them, that your part, your existence is, uh, is contingent upon uh, others and you don't, uh, uh, you don't exist in your own you know, space. You're, you nor anyone else is just an island. And I think, I think that gets a little bit too, uh, this is a little far field, but I think when your mind is constantly going and it's churning and you've got this, you know, either, either in the stream or the creek or the river or the ocean waves, um, all of that stuff separates you from others unless, unless you're actively reaching out. And so that when you're caught in your own mind stream, that mind stream has, I guess, perhaps inherently within it, uh, the quality of separateness. That you're having this thought that somebody else isn't having because you ain't them. You're, and it's either a better thought or a worse thought, or that part doesn't really matter, but it's your thought. You're, you've had this thing and, you know, even, you know, when you're, I don't know, what's a good example? You're listening to music or, reading a book or doing any of those things that you always do, unless you're actively uh, reaching out towards others uh, within that experience, that experience itself um, points out just how, how separate you are. And so I think that, that compassion has to do with constantly reaching out and uh, constantly maintaining that, that web of, of kindness. Um, I have a question. Um, is this lack of interconnectionness, um, interpenetration, one of the objections that people had concerning mindfulness training? Because I can see Westerners using mindfulness training as a means of intellectualizing a lot of things, a lot of actions, without the heart part coming through where... Um, everything is interconnected. Right. Uh, that is the, the, the thing that, that would make it, it's like not quite in the right, in the steps. It, it, it's like almost, but not there. So right. how do you get the interconnectedness part in the mindfulness training? That's the question. Right. That, that I think um, that's a very positive spin. I'd say that that there was that the idea was if you took mindfulness training and you made it basically 
a business-oriented efficiency program where worker bees could do mindfulness training so that they could get back to their computer screens quicker and be better at it. Um, I, think, I think that clearly misses the mark. Um, on the other hand, I think a lot of sort of, I have to say, a lot of commercial, if you will, mindfulness training really also imbued this idea that you're getting at, which is that mindfulness doesn't just spring out of nowhere. It springs out of some sense of connectedness. And so I think, I think to, to the degree that it's purely a, a, a Western productivity tool, that's, that's easy for people not to like. But I think it was more than that. I think it was more um, that, um, that that was a piece of it. And that was, I think, I think that was concerning to people. Um, so I guess in the short answer was yes. I think the, the idea would be is if, if the mindfulness training really was only about uh, making uh, basically workers happier at their computers, then that's a negative. If at the same time, you made them happy and happier, excuse me, at their computers because they felt that they were connected with the other people at their workstations and the other people in the world and that what they are accomplishing was fundamentally something good, that, that both of those things I think were possible. But yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jikoji, please visit us on the web at jikoji.org.